Chapter Seven of the Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Carolyn. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson. Chapter Seven. A first glance at such close quarters would have told the least instructed stranger that he was in the presence of two clashing civilizations, both tenacious, one powerful. In front, all along the shore, towered with confident effrontery a massive line of buildings many stories high, great cubes of brick and stone, having elaborate balconies that shadowed swarming offices with dark, gaping vaults below. Along the broad, stone-paved street clanged electric tramcars. There was a constant coming and going of men. Cloaked and hooded white forms, or half-clad apparitions, wrapped in what looked like dirty bagging, mingled with commonplace figures in western dress. But huddled in elbow-high with this busy town of modern France, which might have been Marseille or Bordeaux, was something alien, something remote in spirit, a ghostly band of white buildings, silent and pale in the midst of colour and noise, low houses with flat roofs or miniature domes, small secret doorways, tiny windows like eyes narrowed for spying, and overhanging upper stories supported on close-set, projecting sticks of mellow brown which meant great age minarets sprang up in mute protest against the infidel appealing to the sky all that was left of old algiers tried to boast in forced dumbness of past glories of every charm the beautiful fierce city of pirates must have possessed before the french came to push it slowly but with deadly sureness back from the sea. Now, silent and proud in the tragedy of failure, it stood masked behind pretentious French houses, block-like in ugliness, or flauntingly ornate, as many buildings in the Rue de Rivoli or Boulevard Haussmann. In those low-browed dwellings, which thickly enameled the hill with a mosaic of pink and pearly whiteness, all the way up to the old fortress castle, the Kasbah, the true life of African Algiers, hid and whispered. The modern French front along the fine strait was but a gay veneer concealing realities, an encrusted civilization imposed upon one incredibly ancient, unspeakably different, and ever unchanging stephen remembered now that he had heard people decry algiers pronouncing it spoiled and completely frenchified but it occurred to him that in this very process of spoiling an impression of tragic romance had been created which less spoiled towns might lack here were clashing contrasts which even at a glance made the strangest picture he had ever seen and already he began to feel more and more keenly, though not yet to understand, something of the magic of the East. For this place, though not the East according to geographers, held all the spirit of the East, 
was in essence truly the east before the ship lay fairly in harbour brown men had climbed on board from little boats demanding to be given charge of the passengers small luggage which the stewards had brought on deck and while one of these was arguing in bad french with stephen a tall dark youth beautifully dressed in crimson and white wearing a fez jauntily on one side stepped up with a smile pardon monsieur he ventured je suis le domestique de monsieur caird and then in richly guttural accents he offered the information that he was charged to look after monsieur's baggage that it was best to avoid tous les arabes là and that monsieur caird impatiently awaited his friend on the wharf but you aren't you arab asked stephen who knew no subtle differences between those who wore the turban or fez he saw that the good-looking merry-faced boy was no browner than many a frenchman of the south and that his eyes were hazel still he did not know what he might be if not arab je suis kabyle monsieur kabyle des eaux plateaux replied the youth with pride and a look of contempt at the shouting porters which was returned with interest they darted glances of scorn at his gold-braided vest and jacket of crimson cloth his light blue sash and his enormously full white trousers beneath which showed a strip of pale golden leg above the short white stockings spurning the immaculate smartness of his livery preferring or pretending to prefer their own soiled shabbiness and freedom the kebile saw these glances but completely satisfied with himself evidently attributed them to envy stephen turned towards victoria of whom he had lost sight for a moment he wished to offer the kebile boy's services but already she had accepted those of a very old arab who looked thin and ostentatiously pathetic it was too late now he saw by her face that she would refuse help rather than hurt the man's feelings but she had told him the name of the hotel where she had telegraphed to engage a room and stephen meant at the instant of greeting his host to ask if it was suitable for a young girl travelling alone he caught sight of caird looking up and waiting for him before he was able to land it was the face he remembered boyish with beautiful bright eyes a wide forehead and curly light hair the expression was more mature but the same quaintly angelic look was there which had earned for neville the nickname of choir-boy and wings hallo legs called out caird waving his panama hallo wings shouted stephen and was suddenly tremendously glad to see the friend he had thought of seldom during the last eight or nine years in another moment he was introducing neville to miss ray and hastily asking questions concerning her hotel while a fantastic crowd surged around all three brown scurrying men in torn bagging the muscles of whose bare hairless legs seemed carved in dark oak shining black men whose faces were ebony under the ivory white of their turbans pale patient kebiles of the plains bent under great sacks of flour which drained through ill-soon seams and floated on the air in white smoke 
making every one sneeze as the crowd swarmed past large grey mules roared miniature donkeys brayed and half-naked children laughed or howled and darted under the heads of the horses or fell against the bright bonnets of waiting motor-cars there were smart victorias shabby cabs hotel omnibuses and huge carts and mingling with the floating dust of the spilled flour was a heavy perfume of spices of incense perhaps blown from some far-off mosque and ambergris mixed with grains of musk in amulets which the arabs wore round their necks heated by their sweating flesh as they worked or stalked about shouting guttural orders there was a salt tang of seaweed too like an undertone a foundation for all the other smells and the air was warm with a hint of summer a softness that was not enervating as soon as the first greeting and the introduction to miss ray were confusedly over caird cleverly extricated the newcomers from the thick of the throng sheltering them between his large yellow motor-car and a hotel omnibus waiting for passengers and luggage now you're safe he said in the young sounding voice which pleasantly matched his whole personality he was several years older than stephen but looked younger for stephen was nearly if not quite six feet in height and neville cared was less in statute by at least four inches he was very slightly built too and his hair was as yellow as a child's his face was clean-shaven like stephen's and though stephen living mostly in london was brown as if tanned by the sun neville out of doors constantly and exposed to hot southern sunshine had the complexion of a girl nevertheless thought victoria sensitive and quick in forming impressions he somehow contrived to look a thorough man passionate and ready to be violently in earnest like one who would love or hate in a fiery way he would make a splendid martyr the girl said to herself giving him straight look for straight look as he began advising her against her chosen hotel but i think he would want his best friends to come and look on while he burned mr knight would chase everybody away don't go to any hotel neville said be my aunt's guest it's a great deal more her house than mine there's lots of room in it ever so much more than we want just now there's no one staying with us but often we have a dozen or so sometimes my aunt invites people sometimes i do sometimes both together now i invite you in her name she's quite a nice old lady you like her and we've got all kinds of animals everything nearly that will live in this climate from tortoises of carthage to white mice from japan and a baby panther from grand Kabylia but they keep themselves to themselves i promise you the panther won't try to sit on your lap and you'll be just in time to christen him we've been looking for a name i should love to christen the panther and you are more than kind to say your aunt would like me to visit her but i can't possibly thank you very much answered victoria in the old-fashioned quaintly provincial way which somehow intensified the effect of her brilliant prettiness i have come to algiers on on business that's very important to me 
Mr. Knight will tell you all about it. I've asked him to tell, and he's promised to beg for your help. When you know, you'll see that it will be better for me not to be visiting anybody. I would rather be in a hotel, in spite of your great kindness. That settled the matter. Neville cared too much tact to insist, though he was far from being convinced. He said that his aunt, Lady MacGregor, would write Miss Ray a note asking her to lunch next day, and then they would have the panther christening. Also by that time he would know, from his friend, how his help might best be given. But in any case, he hoped that Miss Ray would allow his car to drop her at the Hotel de la Caspar, which had no omnibus and therefore did not send to meet the boat. Her luggage might go up with the rest and be left at the hotel. These offers Victoria accepted gratefully, and as Kate put her into the fine yellow car, the handsome Arab who had been on the boat looked at her with chastened curiosity as he passed. He must have seen that she was with the Englishman who had talked to her on board the Charles Q, and that now there was another man who seemed to be the owner of the large automobile. The Arab had a servant with him, who had travelled second class on the boat, a man much darker than himself, plainly dressed, with a smaller turban bound by cheaper cord, but he was very clean, and as dignified as his master. Stephen scarcely noticed the two figures. The fine-looking Arab had ceased to be of importance since he had left the ship, and would see no more of Victoria Ray. The chauffeur who drove Neville's car was an Algerian, who looked as if he might have a dash of dark blood in his veins. Beside him sat the Kabyle servant, who, in his picturesque embroidered clothes, with his jaunty face, appeared amusingly out of place in the smart automobile, which struck the last note of modernity. The chauffeur had a reckless, daring face, with the smile of a mischievous boy, but he steered with caution and skill through the crowded streets where open trams rushed by, filled to overflowing with white-veiled Arab women of the lower classes and French girls in large hats, who sat crushed together on the same seats. Arabs walked in the middle of the street, and disdained to quicken their steps for motor-cars and carriages. Tiny children with charming brown faces and eyes like wells of light darted out from the pavement, almost in front of the motor, smiling and begging, absolutely fearless, and engagingly imprudent. It was all intensely interesting to Stephen, who was, however, conscious enough of his past to be glad that he was able to take so keen an interest. He had the sensation of a man who has been partially paralysed, and is delighted to find that he can feel a pinch. The Hotel de la Casbah, which Victoria frankly admitted she had chosen because of its low prices, was, as its name indicated, close to the mounting of the town, near the corner of a tortuous Arab strait, narrow and shadowy despite its thick coat of whitewash. The house was kept by an extremely fat Algerian, married to a woman who called herself Spanish, but was more than half Moorish and the proprietor himself being of mixed blood, all the servants except an Algerian maid or two were Kabyles or Arabs. They were cheap and easy to manage, since master and mistress had no prejudices. 
stephen did not like the look of the place which might suit commercial travellers or parties of economical tourists who liked to rub shoulders with native life but for a young pretty girl travelling alone it seemed to him that though it was clean enough nothing could be less appropriate victoria had made up her mind and engaged her room however and so as no definite objection could be urged he followed caird's example and held his tongue as they bade the girl good-bye in the tiled hall a fearful combination of all that was worst in arab and european taste neville begged her to let them know if she were not comfortable you're coming to lunch to-morrow at half-past one he went on but if there's anything meanwhile call us up on the telephone we can easily find you another hotel or a pension if you're determined not to visit my aunt if i need you i promise that i will call victoria said and though she answered cared she looked at stephen knight then they left her and stephen became rather thoughtful but he tried not to let neville see his preoccupation End of chapter 7